On the show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is back home in Indiana. I'm going to cover serial killers from my home state. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Today is all about Indiana. On future episodes, I'll dive into some other states as well, but I'm starting in my own backyard first. I covered Herbert Baumeister in the very first Crime Biscuit. He earned himself a full episode, so I won't dredge his crimes up again here. If you want to know more about Weird Herb, go back to episode one. Let's dive into some other Hoosier losers now, starting with Ferion Edward Wardrip. Farian was born on March 6, 1959 in Salem, Indiana. His parents were George and Diana Wardrip. He was the eldest son with one brother. There is no record of Farian ever experiencing any kind of mental or physical abuse as he is growing up. Nothing of note to say, hey, this one is going to go very bad at some point. He did drop out of high school in the 12th grade, and at 19 he joined the U.S. National Guard, where he served for six years. He ends up being released, however, under a less-than-honorable discharge. The reasons for this were smoking pot, disorderly conduct, and multiple cases of being AWOL. Maybe there are some signs here, but again, smoking pot, being rowdy, and taking off without permission aren't really all that ominous, but they are telling of issues that will be a source of trouble going forward. March of 1983, Wardrop gets married to Jonna Jackson. They will have two children, but this marriage has problems. Mainly, Wardrop has a drug and alcohol problem. The same year he got married, he also got a job as a janitor at Wichita General Hospital. Within a year, he was promoted to an orderly. But the drugs and alcohol are going to keep being an issue. Because he can't get his addictions under control, he can't really hold on to any one job for that long. He has to bounce between jobs and his wife's parents have to fork out money to pay for rent and food. By December of 1985, Jonna had had enough and she left him and took the kids. She filed for divorce and that was granted in October of 1986. There were other things going on in Ferion's life during this very same period. Let's do a Crime Biscuit time hop and look at the darker side of Wardrop's life. Terry Sims is 20 years old and working part-time as an EKG specialist at Bethania Hospital. She is also attending Midwestern State University. Terry and her friend Lisa Boone finished working at 11 p.m. on December 20th, 1984. Terry and Lisa stop by a mutual friend's place to exchange Christmas presents, with the plan being that Terry will spend the night at Lisa's apartment afterwards. Terry is going to help Lisa study for an exam that she has to take the next day. Before they get to the place, she gets a call. Lisa gets a call and she has to go back to the hospital and work the night shift. Lisa drives to her apartment, gives Terry the key so she can stay, and then leaves. It's 12.30 a.m. on December 21st. Alone in the apartment, Terry is just hanging out. Then she hears something going on outside of the apartment. She goes to investigate. Outside, there is a man who is kicking up a ruckus and screaming up at the sky. Terry is standing there watching this bizarre behavior. 
Unfortunately, the screaming man sees her and charges towards her. Terry manages to get back inside of the apartment and close the door. But the six foot six, 220 pound man isn't going to be stopped by a door. This man breaks the door down and Terry, who is five foot three and a slight 94 pounds, finds herself face to face with Farian Edward Wardrip. Despite the gross difference in size, Terry puts up a fight, and in order to subdue her, Wardrop binds her hands with an electrical cord. Terry is raped and stabbed to death for no apparent reason other than she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. At 7.30 a.m., Lisa returns to her apartment. The door is locked, and of course she doesn't have the keys because she'd given them to Terry. Pounds on the door, but she eventually gives up and goes to get a key from the landlord. When she gets inside, she finds the living room is in shambles. Lisa immediately leaves the apartment and goes to get the landlord to ask for help. The landlord is the one that goes into the apartment and finds Terry on the bathroom floor in a pool of blood. A semen sample is preserved and a fingerprint that is on one of Terry's shoes is saved for analysis. On January 19, 1985, Tony Gibbs... A 23-year-old registered nurse offers a ride to a fellow co-worker at Wichita General Hospital. It is 6 a.m. and she sees Ferion Wardrip walking. Apparently, he'd been out walking all night. Once he gets in the car, he starts jostling Tony around. Tony is 5'1 and less than 100 pounds, so she isn't too hard for him to manhandle. He forces her to drive to a secluded spot down a dirt road to a field. There he rapes her and stabs her eight times, three times on the back, three in the chest, and two defensive wounds on her left forearm and thumb. Wardrop drives Tony's vehicle to the intersection of Van Buren and McGregor Streets in Wichita Falls and parks it. This spot is less than a mile from his home. People know Tony is missing, and it's two days later that her car is found a few miles from the hospital but it isn't until February 15th that utility workers find her naked body in a field in Archer County, a mile south of the Wichita County line. Sadly, it is one day after her 24th birthday that she is found deceased. Near her body, police find an abandoned school bus, which is where they believe she was attacked. It appears Tony survived the initial assault and naked and wounded had crawled 100 feet before succumbing to her injuries and passing away. Four days after the discovery of Tony's body, Farian Wardrop quits his job at Wichita General Hospital. The initial suspect in Tony's murder is Danny Laughlin, who was known to ride his motorcycle near where she was killed, and also because he'd met Tony recently at a nightclub. Danny fails a lie detector test and makes some suspicious statements to the police. They even go so far as to try Danny for the murder, even though DNA found at the scene doesn't pass the comparison test with Danny's. The trial results in a deadlocked jury and Danny is released. Only one of the 12 jurors thought he was guilty, so prosecutors decide not to retry Laughlin. In March of 1985, Ferion Wardrop moves to Fort Worth, Texas, looking for a job. That same month, he runs across 25-year-old Deborah Taylor at a bar on East Lancaster Street. Deborah had been there with her husband, Ken, but Ken left because he was tired. Now it's just Deborah. She and Wardrop hang out for a few hours after he asks her to dance. 
When it's time to leave, he asks Deborah for a ride home, and she agrees to give him one. They go outside, and this is when Wardrop makes some moves on Deborah, but she's not interested and rejects him. Wardrop's response is to kill her and dump her body at a construction site. Authorities and Deborah's family labor under the belief that Deborah's husband, Ken Taylor, is the one who killed her. Even after he passes three polygraph tests, they still suspect him. September of that same year finds Wardrop back in Wichita Falls, Texas. On September 20th, 21-year-old Ellen Blau, a student at Midwestern State University, is leaving her job as a waitress and walking to her car. Wardrop sees her and abducts her and forces her to drive to a secluded area where he strangles her to death. He leaves her body there and drives her car back to Wichita Falls, where it's abandoned with her purse still inside. When the car is found, there is blood inside of the vehicle, but no Ellen. It isn't until October of 1985 that her body is found by a county road crew. She is in a very advanced state of decomposition, so much so that she has to be identified using dental records. While authorities suspect sexual assault since her underwear are pulled down, the body is too decomposed to get a semen sample or make an accurate analysis. In May of 1986, Wardrop will make his final kill. He suffocates 21-year-old waitress Tina Kimbrew in her own apartment. Wardrop and Tina had only recently become friends. On this day, however, he decided that instead of being friends, he wants to kill her. He suffocates her with a pillow. A few days after killing Tina Kimbrew, Wardrop calls police from across the state in Galveston and tells them he's going to kill himself. When the police get there, Wardrop inexplicably confesses to killing Tina, saying he killed her because she reminded him of his ex-wife. Wardrop at this point isn't suspected of any of the other killings, so he is only charged with Tina Kimbrew's murder. He is sentenced to 35 years. He only serves about 10 because he's paroled in 1997. Once out, Wardrop gets remarried, becomes active in a local church, and earns himself a pretty good reputation with the people in the church. In fact, he teaches Sunday school. And he also gets a job working at a screen door factory. For two more years, there is really nothing going on as far as solving the other three murders. Until 1999, when the cold case squad from Wichita Falls reopens the investigations into the Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Ellen Blaw murders. Notice I didn't mention the murder of Deborah Taylor in Fort Worth. The other three happened in Wichita Falls, so the cold case investigators are only aware of those. And they are aware. Detective John Little, who is working on these unsolved murders, is told by a fellow officer that when Wardrop was on trial for the murder of Tina Kimbrew, he admitted that he knew Ellen Blaw. This is a lead that was never investigated. Detective Little does some more digging and discovers there are other things linking Wardrop to the three unsolved murders, like Ellen, who lived just one block away from Terry Sims, and that Wardrop had worked at the same hospital as Tony Gibbs. They also find out that DNA recovered from Terry Sims and Tony Gibbs are a match for the same killer. Cops get sneaky because they want some DNA from Wardrop. Detective Little goes to the factory where Wardrop is working. Little goes up to him and asks Wardrop if he can use the paper cup Wardrop has been drinking out of. 
Little says he wants to spit out the tobacco he's chewing. So Wardrop gives it to him. Presto, they have Wardrop's DNA. No surprise, it's a match. Wardrop is arrested, and once they have him in custody, he admits to killing Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Alan Blaw. He also goes on to tell them that he was the one who killed Deb Taylor in Fort Worth. Wardrop is tried and convicted and sentenced to death by lethal injection. But that's not the end. In 2008, a federal magistrate says that death penalty should be overturned because Wardrop had ineffective counsel during his trial. On June 14, 2011, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reverses the lower court and says that the state of Texas either needs to give Wardrop a new sentencing trial or agree to give him life instead of the death penalty. The case goes back to the U.S. District Court for consideration. In December of 2014, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals dismissed Wardrop's appeal in regards to inadequate representation. As of right now, Ferion Wardrop remains on death row at Polensky Unit near Livingston. There's a book called Body Hunter, based on Wardrop's crimes, written by Patricia Springer. There's also a book called Dark Dreams. A legendary FBI profiler examines homicide in the criminal mind. That's a long title. It has Wardrop's crimes in Chapter 11. There are a couple of other books as well. There's also an episode of Cold Case Files. Forensic Files, and The New Detectives, which all cover Wardrop. Popular dude, but not for good reasons. Our next Hoosier killer is Orville Majors. Born in 1941, Orville was a licensed nurse. When he gets a job in a rural Indiana hospital, it seems the death rate makes a huge leap upwards. It was normal for about 20 deaths a year, but suddenly there are over 100 the staff is upset and alarmed, to say the least. Doesn't take a rocket scientist either for those working at the hospital to see a connection between the sudden uptick in deaths and the arrival of Orville Majors. The suspicion is that elderly patients who either don't cooperate with him or give him a hard time are likely to end up dead. Death followed episodes of sudden respiratory attacks or cardiac arrests. These conditions were brought on by injections of potassium chloride. Orville would be formally charged with seven murders, be found guilty of six. He was sentenced to 360 years in prison in October of 1999. There is a belief that he probably had over 100 victims, maybe as many as 145. Next up is Eugene Britt. Born in November of 1957, the family was pretty poor and living in Gary, Indiana. Both of Britt's parents were alcoholics, and his father frequently abused his mother. By age 14, Brett couldn't take it anymore. Brett, I meant Brett, couldn't take it anymore, and to escape, he ran from home and ended up on the streets. Didn't take long before drugs and alcohol were a part of his life. He also began to show signs of an intellectual disability. As a kid living on the street, though, it wasn't like there was anyone beating down the door to get him help. He attacked a 17-year-old girl who was headed home from high school in 1978. He robbed her and he raped her. He was arrested for this assault and got a 30-year sentence, but after just 15 years, he was released in August of 93. Britt returned home to Gary, where he often slept in homeless shelters. Some of the time, he lived with one of his sisters doing odd jobs around various places, 
but he liked to spend a lot of his time riding his bike around the city. In a failed suicide attempt, Britt jumped in front of a train, which he survived, but which left him with some pretty severe injuries and in a wheelchair for part of the time. Britt had grown up to be a very large, frightening man. Sarah Lynn Paulson, eight years old, was found dead on August 22nd in Portage, Indiana. While police are looking into her murder, they find some blue polyester fiber yarns and some other green ones that seem to be a match for the uniforms worn by Hardee's employees. For those of you who might not know, Hardee's is a fast food burger joint. Britt just so happened to work at Hardee's in Portage and had been at work, but was sent home early for some kind of work infraction. Britt was seen on his bike not too far from the crime scene. After hearing this, police confiscate his uniform so they can get a look at it. Three days later, Eugene Britt tells Clyde Smith, the head of the homeless shelter he lived at, that he had been the one that killed Sarah. Smith convinced Britt to turn himself in, which he did the next day. For eight hours, police question him, during which time Britt admits to killing 10 people in total. He said he'd killed all of them between May 9th and September 12th. He admitted to dumping their bodies in various locations around Gary. He pointed out the dump sites on a map and the police are shocked to discover that at least seven of these bodies had already been found and that their deaths had been ruled non-homicidal. One of the bodies had been so badly decomposed, the medical examiner couldn't even determine the cause of death. Most of Britt's victims were females between the ages of 8 and 51. There was one male victim. During the interrogation, Britt told police he killed because the voices in his head told him to. He would attack his victims in some isolated area, grabbing them from behind. He dragged them off somewhere to rape them and ultimately strangle them. The man he murdered was a revenge killing. Two men had tried to steal Britt's bike and had broke it in the attempt. They ran off because, like I said, Britt was a large, intimidating figure. Later, though, Britt tracks down one of the two men who he viciously beats and then strangles to death. Police head out the next day after the interrogation and they find bones and clothing in one of the dump sites. In December of that year, the remains are identified as 24-year-old Tanya Dunlap. Even though Britt claimed to have killed 10, only seven were identified. In May of 1996, he was convicted of the murder of Sarah Paulson and due to a plea agreement, received life in prison plus 100 years. In the mid-2000s, his lawyers claimed due to mental deterioration and by saying that they believed him to be criminally insane, they didn't think he should be held liable for his actions. Prosecutors didn't go for it. They had a forensic psychiatric exam carried out and the result was that Eugene Brett was sane and capable of standing trial. On October 6, 2006, he pled guilty to the murders of 14-year-old Nikita Moore, 24-year-old Tanya Dunlop, 41-year-old Maxine Walker, 50-year-old Betty Eskew, 27-year-old Michelle Burns, and 41-year-old Deborah McHenry. He was also convicted of the assault and rape of a 13-year-old girl. Due to his diminished mental state, he wasn't eligible for the death penalty and was instead sentenced to 245 years in prison. He is still in the Indiana State Prison outside of Chicago today. Our last killer is David Most. He wasn't born in Indiana, 
but his days ended in Indiana, so I'm putting him on the list. Most was born in 1954 in Pennsylvania to George and Eva Most. He was the second of four kids. By the time he was eight, his parents divorced. David had some serious problems as a kid. He set fire to his brother's bed. He also tried to drown his brother by pinning him underwater at the Humboldt Park Lagoon. His brother reports that when they were kids, he beat a squirrel to death with a baseball bat just for the fun of it. When he was going on nine, his mother Eva sent him to live with his father. The next day, his dad sent him back to his mom, who then sent him to be institutionalized at the Chicago State Hospital. This is a place that did not have a good reputation. It was kind of a dumping ground for unwanted or mentally ill kids. There was abuse and molestation reportedly going on there. There was some discussion of the parents, George and Eva, having also come from abusive and dysfunctional families themselves. Regardless, Eva didn't want David, and according to the hospital, the boy would stand at the hospital window during visiting hours waiting for his mother to come. Slowly over time, her visits became more infrequent. The hospital staff said David would make excuses to those working there as to why his mother hadn't come. He'd say things like, she's sick or her back is bothering her. In 1967, Eva said that David could come live with her and her new family, her new husband. But instead, 13-year-old David ends up at the Ulick Children's Home. In 1970, he's sent back to the Chicago State Hospital. He then runs away from the facility. His mother, still not wanting to have to deal with him, sends him to live with his uncle in Georgia. A year later, in 71, he goes back to his mother, and she tells him he should join the army. He enlists and is sent to Germany in 1972. While in the army, David is convicted during an army court-martial of involuntary manslaughter in the death of James McClister in Germany. Mausch refused to be considered for parole. In fact, he wrote down that he was happy to be in the disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth. He wrote this. The people there thought I was crazy because I wanted to stay, but I did not think I was crazy. I was happy there, and I was not hurting anyone. Let's rewind a bit and look at some of the things David Most did before this first murder. In 1969, he wrote in his diary that he had attacked a boy and choked him while they were playing. For no reason. David apologized and said he was sorry to the boy who said it was okay. This boy named Eddie was the first person, according to his diary, that he hurt. But didn't his mother say he tried to drown his brother? She also said that when he was just two, he would throw heavy objects at his infant sister's head. For whatever reason, David doesn't consider any of those as people he hurt. At age 15, he also choked a boy named Daniel using a rope while they were just sitting there watching TV. So he has a history. And when he enlists, the history is going to get darker. So let's talk about the killing in Germany. This is Maus' first murder. Jimmy McClister was a 17-year-old boy. According to Maus' writing, he woke up to find the boy Jimmy, who he had just befriended, sleeping on top of him naked. Maus found that he was also naked. This bothered him. A month later, he and Jimmy are taking a ride in a moped in a forest. Using a knife, Maust forced Jimmy deeper into the woods where he tied Jimmy to a tree and beat him both with his fists and then a board. He supposedly felt remorse for what he'd done, so he untied Jimmy and was going to carry him off. But the boy died in his arms 
so he covered the body with leaves and left. A month later, the boy's body was found. Mouse defense lawyers claimed the boy died in a moped crash caused by some teen throwing a screwdriver into the spokes. There were no witnesses to the crime, so they could only convict on manslaughter. He got only three years in Leavenworth, Kansas for that. After he's released from Leavenworth, he heads back to his mom's. While there, he allegedly stabbed a friend in the stomach in his Chicago apartment. He is put on trial for attempted murder, but was found not guilty. In August of 1981, he went looking for a teenage boy that he'd had sex with a few years earlier. But when he gets to that boy's house, he finds out that he's in jail. So instead, he sees Donald Jones walking by. So he decides to lure him to his car. He takes him to a quarry in Elgin, Illinois, where he stabs Donald in the stomach. According to Mouse writing, Donald was saying, I'm only 15 years old. Please don't kill me. Maust does kill him, though. After he stabbed him, he took him to the water and drowned him. Maust then took off and went to Texas, where he stabbed a teenage boy in a hotel room. He served some time for that in a Texas jail. Then he was extradited back to Illinois to stand trial for the killing of Donald Jones. Maust had earlier refused to sign a confession and tried to have the statements he made to detectives suppressed, but the judge denies that request. In June of 1985, he's declared mentally unfit to stand trial. Less than a year later, in March of 87, he is declared fit and he pleads guilty to killing Donald Jones. He received a 35-year prison sentence with 11 years credit for time served. 14 years later, in June of 99, he's paroled under supervised release. In June of 2002, that supervised release ends. Maust first moves to Oak Park, Illinois, and then to Hammond, Indiana. In May of 2003, a boy who works the same place Mouse does goes missing. In September that same year, two others go missing. In December of 2003, police begin investigating. They find the bodies of three teenage boys entombed in the basement of Mouse's rented Hammond house under freshly poured concrete. Mouse had lured these teenage boys to his home using drugs and alcohol. Sounds a little John Wayne Gacy, if you ask me. Mouse admitted to strangling one of the boys in the basement. This would have been 16-year-old James Regani. He was killed on September 10th. The other two boys in the basement were 13-year-old Michael Dennis and 19-year-old Nick James. He befriended all three of them that summer. He'd give them money and marijuana. Eventually, because he'd earned their trust and friendship, he killed them. Maust, once arrested, said he was going to defend himself at trial. He was given three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole in exchange for the state not going for the death penalty. He would end up only serving a few years, though, because in 2006, David Maust hanged himself with a rope braided out of a bedsheet. He died 27 hours later at St. Anthony Medical Center in Crown Point, Indiana, at the age of 51. David left behind a seven-page note admitting to five killings. In this note, he said this, Maybe with my death, the families and the people can go on with their lives and not waste energy wondering why I was still alive. And so ends our episode on Indiana serial killers. Hang tight for the final crumb.
In your free time, if you have any, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Crime Biscuit, or you can send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. In Indiana, we're proud of our racetracks, Notre Dame, and of course, corn. But don't let the sweet exterior fool you. We can churn out some very bad eggs as well. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.